How can we win an argument? Why should we learn about rhetoric? And is the art of persuasion just a form of manipulation? Hi, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with James M. May, professor of classics at St. Olaf's, Minnesota. He is also the Kenneth O. Bjork Distinguished Professor from 2014 to 2017, as well as the author of How to Win an Argument, An Ancient Guide to the Art of Persuasion. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a Society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click Start Here. Now, on to the art of persuasion. Thank you, Dr. May, for speaking with me today. Now, you have written extensively on rhetoric, something Aristotle once described as the combination of the science of logic and the ethical branch of politics. Maybe this is a good place to start. What exactly is rhetoric? Well, rhetoric can be defined in a a number of ways. I suppose the easiest uh, and simplest definition is the art of verbal persuasion. But Aristotle, uh, in his work on rhetoric, uh, defines it in, in this way. He says that uh, rhetoric is the ability to see or discover, in every case, the available means of persuasion. In every case. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... So uh, what, he, what, he, what he means by that is that uh, in any given situation when public speech is uh, called for, uh, art of rhetoric should be able to identify what needs to be said and how to win your arguments. Now this is a very niche branch of study, I suppose, for many people. Um, why should we be interested in learning about this art? Well, uh, as I mentioned in my, uh, in my preface to the little book, uh, uh, How to Win an Argument, uh, we engage in persuasion virtually every day of our lives, whether we think about it or not. Um, of course, most of the persuasion we try to affect is, is minor. Um, we talk with friends, we argue with our husband or wife, we we uh, argue with a friend, we uh, talk about politics with another, um, we maybe go before the city council to try to make a point. All of those cases uh, are daily uses of persuasive speech. Um, and of course, there are other uh, professions and work that involves uh, persuasion on a much greater uh, scale. Uh, if you're a uh, lawyer, uh, if you're a teacher, uh, if you're a politician, uh, if you're a council member or anything like that, uh, you need to be able to speak persuasively in order to carry your point and win arguments. Um, so uh, whether we think about it or not consciously, we are 
probably on a daily basis trying to persuade someone to do something at some time. Um, so uh, because human beings are uh, endowed with the gift of reason and speech, as Cicero says, unlike all the other animals that prowl around the earth, um, we need to use those tools to uh, make our points and live effectively. Now, the, the art of persuasion can be sort of infinitely understood in a, in a much more deep and complex way. Uh, Aristotle sort of categorizes things as he's, he's often wanted to do and describes different types of audience appeals like logos and pathos and ethos. And would you be able to continue on with that in regards to giving us a few more examples of how we may be able to win an argument? Or some tips that sure. would, you know, yeah. give us the edge? Um, so, uh, if, if, for instance, um, uh, we'll take a, take a court case um, that any orator or lawyer today might, uh, uh, might engage in, or particularly one that Cicero would engage in, um, he would present um, his arguments um, in logical fashion, um, and there would be, a, there would be a, a portion of his speech that was dedicated in, uh, largely to laying out the arguments in a very logical manner, and this would primarily use the tools of um, syllogism and example. Those are the two uh, real weapons of dialectic. Uh, you know, uh, your, your listeners probably are well aware of um, uh, syllogistic reasoning. So, for instance, uh, the, the example that's always given is um, Socrates is a man, um, minor premise, all men are mortal, conclusion, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's, that's a syllogism. And rhetoric uses syllogisms. They're a little less uh, standard. They're called enthymemes in, in rhetoric, but basically it's syllogistic reasoning. Uh, the, second, the second type of uh, logical argument uh, that is uh, a tactic that is used is through example. So if you would um, draw an example that such and such happened in this way on such a date and so forth, and if we do this now, the same thing will happen again. That, these are logical types of arguments. Um, the arguments based on character um, can be either blatant or subtle, and um, these are, um, you know, rehearsing one's accomplishments, whether you're talking about yourself or your client, um, the, the good uh, aspects of, of, of uh, your client's character or your character, um, the things that you have accomplished for the state, for the community, and so on and so forth. And then, and then the stirring of emotions uh, would be the use of um, arguments that, 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 that bend one's heart or soul. Uh, they could be used to uh, in, invoke uh, anger. For instance, um, in the United States case, uh, politicians will often repair to the disaster uh, that happened, say, at Pearl Harbor, or more recently, of course, 
on 9-11. And this evokes in, in the audience a kind of uh, anger for those who, against those who, who perpetrated the act and a kind of patriotism on behalf of the country and so forth. Um, or uh, a common tactic in antiquity was at the end of the speech for a uh, person on trial to bring in his family dressed in mourning clothes, um, holding his children in his arms, uh, causing the jury to, to weep for him, you know, saying, if this man is convicted, look what will happen to his family and so forth. And so these kinds of appeals to emotion were extremely common in antiquity. Uh, today we're not as blatant with those appeals, maybe, but people still use them in subtle ways. Uh, in the courtroom and another place. Uh, so you, you, the last point uh, with regards to the emotional appeal, um, I guess, as you, as you mentioned, this was sort of done commonly in the ancient world, uh, but today we would just do it more subtly. <laughs> but do you think today's perception of appealing to the, to the pathos is seen as almost a form of manipulation, like a... And, and a way to trick somebody? Uh, indeed. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, as I'm, I know you know, uh, in antiquity, uh, there was great suspicion about the use of uh, rhetorical proofs, particularly those based on ethos and pathos, as, uh, as manipulation. Yeah, and um, we, we can and think of Socrates for that regard. <laughs> That, exactly. They're, we de they developed very early on uh, with Socrates uh, a quarrel between the philosophers and the rhetoricians, or philosophy and rhetoric. And of course, uh, Socrates criticizes, uh, th through the writings of Plato, of course, criticizes uh, uh, rhetoric and the sophists who employed rhetoric and taught rhetoric because he, um, he accused them of making the worst seem the better cause. And you might remember, uh, those of your listeners who have read the, the great speech by Socrates at his trial, when he was put on trial and ultimately condemned to death, uh, the apology, that he says in that speech that he will refuse to employ the tactics of Paphos bringing in his family and raising up his children and so forth in his arms and, and causing people to weep for him. Um, it, it, that's a very interesting thing. So, so what, what happens is um, for several hundred years, this quarrel uh, was in the background of intellectual history in Greece and Rome. And Cicero uh, knew of this quarrel and he talks about it in his uh, great work on, on the ideal orator. And um, what Cicero tries to do is actually forge a bond between uh, what he calls wisdom and eloquence or philosophy and rhetoric, saying that actually they're, they're naturally bonded together, the, the mind and the tongue are really one instrument, whereas Socrates tried to split them. And uh, he tries to bring them back together to construct a philosophical rhetoric or a rhetorical philosophy. That still begs the question uh, about the modern views of rhetoric. Often when you hear the word rhetoric, 
uh, somebody will say today, oh, that's simple rhetoric. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's used in a very pejorative sense to mean, that, in fact, that the speaker is trying to manipulate the audience in ways that, are, that go beyond logical argumentation. And as a matter of fact, um, those of us who follow carefully uh, political debates, uh, campaigns, speeches, and so forth, uh, will realize that most of what's going on there is an attempt to manipulate people either through ethos or pathos. So rhetoric can be a tool that is used for harm and ill to communities rather than for the good of communities. And Cicero also recognizes this fact. I suppose it's also valuable to study it so that you can see it when it's happening to you. I mean, being aware of those tactics might allow people to not have the emotional response that's intended if they're able to see past the, the guise, so to speak. That's exactly right. And um, in, in, in Cicero's first rhetorical work, which he wrote actually as a very uh, young man, a teenager, um, called On Invention, he has a very interesting preface in which he talks about um, the debate, this debate between wisdom and eloquence. And he, he said there, uh, right in the first few paragraphs of the work, that um, the, the, the weapon eloquence, when put in the hands of populous uh, and designing people, have many states, whereas um, unless people have the ability to speak and persuade, their wisdom will remain silent. So he would advocate using the tools of rhetoric. In the ancient world, people were just a lot more political. I mean, they were more involved in politics. So... The concepts of rhetoric and, and speaking and the art of persuasion, maybe they would have been much more familiar with it, even if they're just being exposed to it, or, or they might have to speak more often. Do you think that they would have been much more knowledgeable about this form of speaking than people are today? Um, yes, and the main reason is, uh, there are a couple reasons, I think. The art of rhetoric was born in response to a need for people to partake in government. If you think back on the democracies, the early democracies of Greece, um, in in Athens and in Sicily, uh, in the fifth century BC, um, you will recall that um, with the establishment of a democratic form of government. These were more or less radical types of democracies. And what I mean by that is that they were not representative forms, but rather that citizens were expected to speak on their own behalf. And when courts were established um, and someone would be taken to court for a suit of some sort, that person, particularly in Greece, was expected to defend himself uh, and speak for himself. So these arts of rhetoric started to evolve and sprung up as kind of handbooks to teach people 
how to speak in public. Um, and so that tradition carried over from Greece into Rome, and although Rome was a, was a representative form of democracy, a republic, um, uh, there was still plenty of occasion for people to speak publicly, especially for people in the public eye. Now, the, the, the overarching reason why speech is more, in a sense, more relevant and important in antiquity is because that's the only way you could communicate. Uh, if you think about it, they were an oral society, an oral and owl society. They spoke, they listened, and the powers of listening and memorize, memorizing were far greater than ours because they had to be. If you think about it, they didn't have telephones, uh, telegraphs, uh, computers, teleprompters, uh, radios, TVs, anything, you know, anything, uh, Twitter. <laughs> um, it all had to be done through speech and through listening. And so their society uh, at its base was really uh, dependent on the principles of people speaking and others listening. So, yes, I, I think that's a good observation that uh, in those societies, uh, in order to um, function uh, in public particularly, one had to be, uh, one had to depend more on oral and oral skills. I suppose the modern term that sounds a little bit more innocuous would be public speaking. Like it might be common for somebody to take a public speaking class, even in high school, right. a drama class. We wouldn't say the art of persuasion. Uh, you know, we would just talk about speaking out loud. You know, And I guess that would focus more on, you know, memorization or the ability to deliver and project. And uh, it has a lot less to do about constructing your argument, which I think is an important skill to, to study. I guess it's sort of tragic in a way that we, we don't, your average person doesn't spend the time to study how to do this. Right. Uh, well, here's an interesting point in, in, that's apropos to that, uh, to your comment. Um, in, in these ancient handbooks uh, that taught uh, rhetoric, the art of persuasion, um, they, they follow basic patterns that we see first in Aristotle and then in all subsequent rhetorical handbooks. And uh, one part of the handbook talks about the five duties or parts of oratory. And these five um, are extremely important. And as a matter of fact, up until really quite recently, the first three of those five were used in teaching college composition, uh, even writing. So um, let me just uh, uh, reiterate or, or uh, talk about those five uh, briefly. The first is called invention. These are the processes through which someone should go who is writing an effective speech. So the first one is invention. Now, what that means in Latin, in radio in Latin, means to come upon, to find. And that means the discovery of your material. So the first thing you need to do is to discover 
the material that you're going to talk about and and what in particular in a court case what defensive stance you're going to take um, if you're writing an essay you have to think about this also your first step and often the most difficult is finding a theme for your essay a subject matter for your essay so what you do in that first step is you collect all that material the second step is called disposition or arrangement. So once you have your material, you need to arrange it in an effective way. The orator needs to arrange it in a way that will be effective so his listeners can be persuaded. The writer needs to arrange his or her paragraphs and sentences in an effective way. Think of how many times when you were a high school student or a college student and your English professor or teacher you know, circled a sentence and said, this sentence is out of place. This should be the topic sentence, or this should come later in the paragraph, or these paragraphs need to be transposed. This is all part of arrangement. And Cicero likens arrangement to a general um, stationing his troops in the field in the most effective way. So once you have your material, you'll have to arrange it. Then once you've arranged it, then you need to apply the right style. That's the third duty of the orator, style. And, and, and in antiquity, there were uh, three styles, usually the, the, the uh, simple, the middle, and the grand style. And there are uh, appropriate virtues of style. One of them, as a matter of fact, is appropriateness. So you have to fit the style to the appropriate occasion. And uh, depending on who you're addressing, what you're doing, for whom you're writing, you'll, you'll attach a particular style. You wouldn't probably write a letter to your grandmother in the same style you might write to your college roommate. Um, so you have to do the right style. Then um, for the orator, there are two more steps. For the writer, that's basically it. Um, and those composition books that even in English composition classes in college in the United States in the last century were based upon this system, they usually ended there. But for the orator, he has two more steps in antiquity. The fourth step is memory. And in antiquity, everything was memorized. Uh, Cicero would not have stood up, even for a speech that lasted four or five hours long, and read it from a, a, a written script, word for word. All of his uh, speech would have practically been memorized, and the ancients were the ones who actually uh, created uh, effective memory systems, many of which are still used today. And then the final step, um, which some would consider one of the most important, was delivery. You had to practice the delivery of your speech. And um, a famous orator that you, you may have heard of, Demosthenes, the great Greek orator, was once asked, what's the most important thing in oratory? And he said, delivery. He said, what's the most delivery? What's the third most delivery? So it's like today, uh, real estate, location, location, location. And again, you can see that sometimes um, the trappings of rhetoric can be manipulative and persuasive in ways that might be harmful. So for instance, 
we often say, well, it's not so much what you say, but how you say it. That can be a dangerous thing, right? So somebody who has an extremely effective delivery, um, using voice and gesture, those are the two main categories of delivery, uh, can persuade people just by that, uh, by that function rather than logical argumentation. So we have to be careful about that. But at any rate, those five tasks of the orator were extremely important. And uh, as you point out in your comments that uh, prompted this long answer of mine, uh, speech classes and composition classes basically rely on at least those first three steps uh, in constructing either a good essay or a good speech. Well, I gotta say, I actually really enjoyed that answer quite extensively, and it's uh, it's making me think I should just, you know, for fun on the weekend, start up a bit of a debate club with my friends to see if I can reenact some of these efforts and improve my abilities. <laughs> um, but but it's also... I like that idea. <laughs> it, it's kind of terrifying, though, what you said, that, you know, when people do use it for malicious purposes, because, you know... And, and again, in today's world, you, you usually see it in politics or, or law. But there's sometimes, like, you listen to a politician, and you break down what they've said, and you realize they haven't said anything at all. <laughs> and yet people will be clapping and cheering, and you're like, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah, you know, you can really convey a lot just with the, with the tone and um, to get the crowds um, enthusiastic. Uh, it, it, it would be nice if people used a bit more logos sometimes, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Well, well um, your, your earlier comment, I think, is apropos here that uh, if for nothing else, it's good to understand these rhetorical strategies so that you can, in fact, uh, resist those attempts at manipulation by people who are perhaps less scrupulous than others. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Professor May at classicalwisdom.com. And if you would like to learn more about Professor May's book, how to Win an Argument, an Ancient Guide to the Art of Persuasion, please go to press.princeton.edu.